Welcome to On the Middle East, our monitor's podcast on the big stories in the region. My name is Ambrin Zaman and I am Almonitor's Chief Correspondent reporting from London. Today, I'll be looking at Iran's role in the ongoing conflict in Gaza. Was Iran involved in Hamas's October 7th attack on Israel? What are its strategic calculations amid concerns that the war might expand beyond Israel? Iran and its Lebanese proxy Hezbollah have vowed to retaliate should Israel launch a ground offensive in the Gaza Strip. Are these empty threats aimed at deterrence, or can the conflict spiral out of control? With us here today to reflect on these questions is Hamid Reza Azizi, a visiting fellow at the German Institute for International and Security Affairs in Berlin. Thanks for joining us today, Hamid Reza. I know you have an incredibly busy schedule and that you're highly in demand. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be back on this podcast. Uh, always a pleasure working with our monitor, of course. Thank you, Hamid Reza. So my first question to you is going to be an extremely obvious one, and it's as follows. Was Iran in any way involved in the planning of the October 7th attack? Is Iran complicit in this attack by Hamas? Well, I think it's uh, the million-dollar question everybody wants to find an answer for uh, these days. And based on what we hear from American officials, Israeli officials, there's uh, no evidence of uh, Iran's direct involvement in that. And I do agree that, you know, based on my knowledge of strategic thinking, the way that strategic thinking, especially in the case of Israel-Palestine, works in Iran, it wouldn't make sense for Iran to get involved in this. First of all, you know, uh, of course, uh, this idea of a uh, uh, kind of multi-front war with Israel or an eventual war with Israel um, has been there for uh, quite some time. Uh, in Iran, and it's no secret, actually, you know, uh, even the media affiliated to IRGC were, uh, in the past couple of years, um, publishing extensive reports, comprehensive reports about how that might unfold, what would be different fronts involved in that, all these kinds of things. But then, assuming that the Hamas attack was part of that multi-front war strategy for Iran, You know, it doesn't make sense in that context. Why I'm saying this? Because, you know, um, that strategy, I mean, I I would say the latest uh, elements of that strategy, which was uh, uh, emphasized by uh, the person of Supreme Leader Khamenei also, uh, was the arming of the West Bank and uh, first uh, unifying uh, the uh, so-called Palestinian fronts and more broadly, the unification of the arenas or the unification of the fronts in the so-called axis of resistance, as as they call it. But uh, based on the facts on the ground, uh, the West Bank front uh, was not ready yet. Uh, So that uh, cannot be, again, uh, in terms of the strategic planning, the way I know from the Islamic Republic, that couldn't be the beginning of that multi-front war. This is first thing. Second, if it was, uh, uh, part of the plan, then it would make more sense for uh, other fronts to get activated immediately after the Hamas attack on October 7, when Israel was still uh, uh, somehow at shock, 
And while uh, the uh, kind of Israeli uh, military security apparatus was still in kind of crisis management mode. So if they wanted to kind of, how to say, deal a heavier blow to, to Israel, then Hezbollah would have, you know, be involved and then other, other members of the front. But what we saw on the Iran side, at least, and then later Hezbollah, they also seem to be a little bit uh, confused on uh, what exactly was happening. Of course, you know, as a as a established policy for the Islamic Republic, they started kind of showing their uh, full support for expressing basically full support for Hamas. Uh, but then uh, they didn't speak and they haven't spoken so far about uh, any intention uh, to get involved in that. And it was all before. Uh, the U.S. messaging that, uh, you know, there would be consequences for Iran, all these sorts of things. Uh, long, long story short, I think, uh, of course, you know, if we kind of interpret or if we say that supporting Hamas, arming Hamas means Iran's involvement, of course, that's the case because Iran has been the main supporter, military, especially in the military field for Hamas over the years. And this is not new. Hamas has been part of this uh, so-called axis of resistance. And more recently, we are hearing that there's actually a joint operations room in that axis. So there has been, of course, some, there must have been some level of coordination between the sides. But I really don't think that, you know, it was part of a broader strategy devised by Iran in order to inflict a kind of irreparable damage to, to Israel. So I just want to throw in a question that has always uh, perplexed me. When we think of Iran and its proxies, they're almost always Shia militias, correct? And so, especially knowing the sort of Islamic Muslim Brotherhood ideology as it as it uh, pertains to Shia Islam, it, it's kind of confusing for me that there would be any kind of alliance between Iran and Hamas, which is, you know, at its core, uh, a Muslim Brotherhood rooted uh, uh, movement. So how does that actually work? Yeah, that's actually a very interesting question. And it has uh, actually both ideological and uh, strategic uh, aspects, you know, starting from the latter. I, I do believe that, you know, this whole notion of axis of resistance, however ideological that it may sound, its, its main function is actually strategic uh, for Iran. I mean, there was a time right after the Islamic revolution that Iran started speaking about exporting the revolution, all these kind of enthusiastic ideas about, you know, having Islamic revolutions in, in other countries in the region, etc., etc. Uh, but then, uh, especially uh, with the war in Iraq, which was, of course, partly also, uh, I mean, at least if not in the case of Iraq itself, but in the case, uh, in the sense that uh, Arab countries uh, fully supported Iraq, it was also out of the fear that Iran was actually trying to, you know, export its revolution, right? So in that sense, the limits of the kind of exporting the revolution, that ideological aspect became clear to Iran. And they shifted toward a more kind of strategic reassessment of, of their ideological assets or what they had already accumulated in terms of the ties with fellow Islamist groups in the sense that they could use them to strengthen their deterrence and uh, basically as a strategic asset. That's how 
uh, the whole axis of resistance uh, started to, to take shape. So it's based on the idea uh, referred to in the strategic literature of, uh, of Iran as, as forward defense. So these are the groups devised uh, to work on Iran's behalf uh, in order for Iran not to uh, you know, be forced to you know, face the threats inside its territory. So it doesn't have to do with really with ideology. You know? There are groups with stronger ties like Hezbollah, and there are groups like, with, with lesser ties like Hamas, you know. So as long as they share Iran's threat perception vis-a-vis -vis Israel and the United States, they can be allies of Iran, even in the case of the Houthis. So that's the strategic aspect. And the ideological aspect, actually, when it comes to Ayatollah Khamenei's view of, of Islamism, he's quite, I mean, he's always been very positive regarding Muslim Brotherhood way of thinking. Of course, these ideas, these ideologies seem kind of not, not compatible. But, you know, when you go deep into this kind of clerical reading of, of the political Islam, and at the end of the day, those early literature of the Muslim Brotherhood contributed a lot to the writings of Ayatollah Khomeini and then Ayatollah Khomeini. So they don't see the, uh, those kind of people, Muslim Brotherhood, as like as far as uh, Khomeini is concerned. Because the contact I've had with people of that ilk, inevitably, Shia Muslims are somehow seen as heretics, as not real Muslims in the conversations I've had. I even remember very vividly having a conversation with one such person in Turkey where he claimed that one day all the Alevis in Turkey would convert to Sunni Islam and that there would be no Alevis left in the country. But okay, so, you know, getting back to my original question, you seem to be suggesting that Iran has no interest, in fact, in seeing a wider conflagration, one that, you know, pulls it in. And in fact, this whole forward strategy that you forward front strategy is that what you said seems forward to, defense forward defense seems to boil down basically to preventing iran itself getting dragged into a war and i guess that has a link to the very horrible war that iran was involved in for eight years that killed more than half a million iranians that was very traumatic and i'm sure is still uh, you know still resonates in iran that trauma so that being the case, um, how does Iran, in fact, prevent itself from getting involved in this war? What kind of tools does it have to sort of insulate itself from conflict? Uh, for, I mean, to answer that, uh, we need to uh, mention a little bit the pillars of uh, Iran's military doctrine. Of course, you know, we don't have such thing as as a published doctrine, as a kind of uh, you know documents that uh, you would see, for example, in the case of the United States or uh, Russia, for example, uh, etc. Uh, but you know there are uh, references to that by the high-ranking officials, and there are uh, you know publications elaborating uh, elaborating it. So. Um, I mentioned forward defense. Forward defense itself, you know, can be defined uh, in the context of uh, asymmetric deterrence. Uh, so asymmetric deterrence uh, comes from uh, the notion that uh, Iran uh, actually faces uh, threats uh, all over the region that, you know, have a kind of uh, asymmetric nature in the sense that, you know, it's either the United States or the allies of the United States, which more, much more uh, advanced capabilities, for example, in term, especially in terms of air power, 
uh, in terms of, uh, especially, for example, in the 1990s, right after uh, the uh, uh, end of the war uh, with Iraq, in terms of uh, the capabilities uh, to hit Iran uh, from afar, all these sorts of things. Uh, so Iran found itself in a situation that it couldn't uh, kind of upgrade its uh, air force, it couldn't get uh, international cooperation for upgrading its uh, military capabilities. Uh, so it started on cooperating with some uh, countries like North Korea, like Russia to some extent, and also getting some things from black market, but more, more importantly, working on domestic uh, technology and, and domestic production. And uh, it concentrated on uh, some um, specific elements uh, in its military. One is missile, and the other one is um, uh, sort of uh, non-state allies uh, in this so-called axis of resistance. And then more recently, they also worked uh, on uh, drones, for example. And the naval aspect of that uh, has been also evolving over the past years. But what all these elements have in common is that they allow Iran to expand uh, the geography of its response to the threats, you know, in terms of missiles and stuff. So they don't have air force, but they have a capable missile that can, uh, you know, uh, create heavy damage. And then, uh, you know, in this context, they have started to link all these elements together. You know, missiles and drones um, have been transferred to, to the non-state uh, groups throughout the region. We saw that. We are seeing that, that right now, those groups, you know, uh, conducting missile attacks against uh, U.S. bases, for example, before that, the Houthis targeting Saudi Arabia. Uh, so this is a kind of multi-dimensional uh, and layered kind of military strategy that, you know, for, for the adversaries, it would be, I mean, they would require to go through all these layers to neutralize Iran's uh, non-state allies, which are also acting on asymmetric ways, and then go back to Iran itself. So that's the way it works, basically. You know, what you just described reminds me of a, a, a scene in that Harrison Ford movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark, where you have this, I think it was Japanese or Chinese guy doing all these elaborate karate judo moves, and Harrison Ford just pulls out his gun and <laughs> shoots the guy. So um, <laughs> I guess, Mike, I, I, I would like to sort of look at it from a different uh, aspect I mean, if you're Iran and you want to insulate yourself from war, isn't your best option to somehow revive the nuclear deal? And knowing that the United States, at least the Obama, I mean, sorry, the Biden administration, certainly was very focused on that for a while. Perhaps this crisis offers an opportunity for just that, which, you know, I mean, I mean, rationally speaking, is is a very sort of obvious way in fact, for Iran to, to, to separate itself from Hamas at this time. You know, of course, the rhetoric, all of that, you know, well, it's rhetoric. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, that's that's exactly the reason why they are denying any involvement in the Hamas attack, you know, because they don't, I mean, they see the threat. And this whole military strategy is also based on a constant assessment of, uh, of the threats, you know, and they see that how the uh, kind of U.S. role is changing, how U.S. is kind of redeploying uh, uh, forces to the region uh, in order to support Israel, and they know that uh, a greater involvement uh, in this in this whole war 
uh, would be uh, detrimental to them. And that's why, I mean, that's actually a very good example uh, proving that uh, the core notion in Iran's military strategy is deterrence. Uh, you know, they do offensive, but it's, I mean, they even, they even describe it as, as offensive defense sometimes in, yeah, uh, instead I'm of uh, forward defense. Effective in the, at the end of the day, if, you know, with all of those assets that the United States has moved into the region, how effective that deterrence is at the end of the day, particularly if at some point the United States decides to, you know, help Israel take out Iran's nuclear capabilities because obviously you need the united states for that to happen for it to be effective which is yeah, why that's, I a, that's a very question. good question you know why isn't yeah. there a real incentive there for iran to sort of be much more conciliatory and you know send a positive message to the us that hey you know we're going to be more flexible let's do this yeah, sorry, oh, there's like the way uh, they think. Uh, I mean, maybe that's not how the Ayatollahs yeah. think. I don't know. You have no, no. I missed part of your question because of this internal situation in Germany. That's that's not always helpful. Yeah. Now I get what you mean. But so yeah, I mean, of course, it's a it's a very good question. How how effective it is? I mean, look, the regional aspect of Iran's military strategy is one thing, while at the same time they have worked on uh, this kind of passive uh, uh, defense. You know. Uh, inside the country. For example, when it comes to the nuclear uh, capabilities, uh, exactly as a result of uh, the American and Israeli uh, uh, threats and the potential, which at some points have been uh, quite high, sometimes you know, a little bit lower, they have, for example, in terms of the locations, you know, there's, and Iran is a big country. It's like dispersed throughout the country, these locations, so that, you know, and also, the same is the case uh, with regard to the missile sites and missile silos. They are uh, mostly uh, positioned underground and also, you know, in different parts of the country. And, you know, what I want to say is that in, uh, as far as uh, the domestic aspect of, of military strategy is concerned, they want to make sure that they will sort of uh, preserve the or maintain the capability of, of second strike. I mean, in this case, of course, uh, we are not, I, I'm using the uh, nuclear uh, literature, but they don't have, have it. So in terms of the missile capabilities, and also, you know, the missiles and drones in the hands of uh, proxies and, and non-state allies, that also works in the same way. Iran, Iran knows that, you know, it cannot like damage the interests of the United States directly. But the asymmetric element of that means that uh, the U.S. bases are within the range of uh, Iran's missiles in a, in a war situation. Israel itself is within the range of Iranian and Iran-backed groups, uh, missiles and drones. Uh, so that's the way uh, they have uh, devised this strategy. So, of course, the United States can strike Iran, uh, mostly in terms of airstrike. Iran, uh, I mean, there's this assumption, and I think it's uh, true to, to, to a great extent that the Iranian geography, the West geography, would not allow for uh, a ground invasion. Uh, Israel uh, definitely cannot do that for the United States. It would be much more of a quagmire than, than uh, the case of Iraq. So everything at the end of the day would be uh, about missile, air force, air defense, and also proxies. And that's how Iran sees that, and that's what it, invested, it has invested on. So again, 
uh, it doesn't mean that uh, in the case of war, Iran is not going to be damaged. The damage is going to be high. And that's why they are backing off, you know, back to the uh, other question. That's why they are saying, no, this is not us, because they know that they see that the U.S. is serious, you know. Uh, they, uh, Khamenei doesn't want uh, to, I mean, and, and he's quite old, he doesn't want to die and, and, and a country, a distracted country. Uh, be inherited to the next person. This is at least my understanding of, 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 of uh, him and the Islamic Republic. Yeah. Yet, yet uh, a lot of the analysis, including your own, by the way, has, has given sort of lends much more agency to Iran uh, in the aftermath of October 7th, with many arguing, you know, the fact that the United States seems to have alienated so much of the global south, that it seems to be pushing Russia and Iran and China all far closer together, Turkey sort of on the fence, but increasingly leaning towards the axis of reform, as you <laughs> described it in one of your papers. Is that actually a realistic assessment, given what you've just told us i mean what's i mean if you were to do a balance sheet where does iran come out up you know after october 7th is it in a better place or a, a trickier place well i i think it is absolutely in a trickier place and the longer term implications are going to be quite challenging for iran i mean the way but this is not the way that the islamic republic officials sees you know for if you refer to, to his speech, he sees that as a kind of irreparable defeat, an absolute defeat for Israel and also for the sort of, also a blow to, to the Arab-Israeli peace, all these kinds of things. And that's the perception, I would say misperception, balance in Iran that, you know, guides a lot of its, and has guided a lot of its regional activities. But, you know, uh, just take the case of Arab-Israeli normalization, for example. Right now, Iran tries to build on this kind of atmosphere uh, in support of Palestine, uh, especially around the Muslim countries. I mean, I mean, Abdullahian is going around. Uh, he's going to go to uh, Riyadh, for example, for this Islamic countries meeting, etc., etc. But at the end of the day, uh, when I, as an analyst, look at uh, what's happened, and if I were... Uh, Saudi decision maker, I would see the balance of uh, power basically changing. And also, you know, if Israel is uh, vulnerable to this extent, to just one Iranian proxy, then what would be the situation of us? So it would naturally, I mean, I'm just two plus two is four, you know, that's what, that's what I'm saying. It's, it's the rationale of, of, of uh, uh, balance of power. So they would once this uh, kind of atmosphere, once this uh, kind of uh, war situation subsides, then uh, they would uh, most probably go for even a tighter cooperation with, with Israel. So that's how, that's how I see it. Also, in terms of, you know, they have been, I mean, the Iranian leaders, they have been promoting this idea of U.S. decline, of U.S. Uh, kind of withdrawing from the region, etc., etc. Now U.S. is coming back to the region full force. And the messages are serious, and they are taking the messages serious. So what was the aim? To bring back the United States to the region to create more challenges to yourself? If that was the aim, so, yeah, it was good. <laughs> so, uh, again, <laughs> what I described as Iranian perceptions is not necessarily what uh, I, I would expect to unfold on, on the ground, basically. So, speaking of the ground, obviously, you see a spike in attacks against U.S. forces by these proxies in Iraq and in Syria. And that sort of 
contradicts what we've just been talking about, the fact that Iran really doesn't want to, you know, <laughs> trigger the United States. Why is that happening? What's going on? I mean, um, can I just again, ask yeah. another question? Is 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 sure. there somehow in their minds some kind of balance where you you know Hezbollah doesn't attack Israel? It's you know kept on a tight leash, but on the other hand, this is an opportunity maybe to press even harder on the U.S. to get out of Syria and Iraq, uh, and that's kind of seems like a reasonable uh, you know strategy to pursue. And that one that, that that the United States may be okay with almost is is that what they're thinking? What's going on in their heads? Yeah, I cannot say exactly what what's going on uh, in their heads, but I can see the narrative coming from there, and also you know to put it in context, I can share my ideas about that. Look, it brings us actually back to the issue of uh, you know the U.S. coming full force uh, in support of uh, of Israel. Uh, so there, I would say, I mean, again, I do believe that uh, the Hamas attack was not part of uh, a kind of coordinated uh, multi-front war campaign against uh, against Israel. So that's one thing. But at the end of the day, the very notion that there might be a moment that Iran can go for uh, a multi-front war with Israel was based on the idea that the United States is withdrawing from the region and it doesn't have the capacity, given the war in Ukraine, given the bigger rivalry with, uh, with China, etc., to go back to the region as they perceive it, right? So that was the biggest miscalculation in this whole axis of resistance. And now they are facing the implications and the consequences of this miscalculation and they want to manage it. And the way that uh, they see it is that, uh, okay, the United States is there, and it means two things. First, um, the damage that is going to be inflicted to Hamas can be even higher than we expected in the first few days, because if the United States is going to go there, if, if for example, I mean, that's not going to happen as far as we know, uh, but for example, if U.S. forces are going to go on the ground, et cetera, et cetera, the damage would be like very, very huge. So it's about Hamas, one of the allies. On the other hand, they know that their hands are tied. Hezbollah cannot really go for a, a bigger war. I mean, it can, but then the United States uh, is going to get involved. And then it's not going to be uh, to remain limited to Hezbollah and Iran. So what they are doing right now is to keep, I mean, all these attacks against the U.S. forces, I mean, the strategy, the logic behind it, the strategic logic is exactly like what Hezbollah is doing in the Northern Front uh, against Israel, you know, to keep them busy, to, to show that we are constantly prepared. If you escalate, we can escalate. So it's a message of uh, readiness for escalation. But the final aim is to de-escalate in the sense that the United States is not going to get involved. And there are voices in Iran, actually, and this is interesting, uh, a warning that the United, if Israel, if uh, it, is, it feels quite pressured, then uh, Israel can uh, go for some provocation against Iran so that Iran would respond directly and then the United States would uh, come in full support. And then the whole uh, kind of global uh, public uh, opinion thinking would also change because now it's uh, Israel against uh, Palestinians as it is perceived. Then it would be Israel against Iran and Iran, uh, you know, as as a uh, as a historical adversary of of Israel. Then it would ch change basically everything. So that's the way of thinking.
as and I all of this would be so much easier if the United States and Iran were actually speaking to each other directly, right? Yeah, of course. I mean, good old days of uh, the JCPOA. And then, I mean, these all have to do with the maximum pressure, I think, because it's hugely intensified Iran's threat perception. And of course, you know, I'm not saying that it was all the fault of the United States. Miscalculations, I mean, it wasn't just one single miscalculation on Iran. You know, they were counting on this cold winter in Europe that would push them to conciliate with Russia. And then their alliance with Russia was based on this whole notion. They put themselves in a kind of direct confrontation with Europe. You know, all sorts of miscalculations has, uh, have happened in these past two years. So, I mean, they go from having a good position to damaging that position by their mis miscalculation and then going to damage control mode. This has been the mood, at least in the kind of U.S. withdrawal from the JCPOA. So moves and counter moves and then a crisis so and counter not, Why not, as I keep asking you, why not then sort of send a message to the U.S. that, hey, I keep repeating the question and you're not answering it. Yeah. You don't think they're ready for that, that it's not being considered, or is it just unrealistic given the way things are currently? Uh, first of all, they really believe that they cannot, uh, they cannot trust the United States in terms of having any deal. Second, there are still, I mean, this whole thing happened. I mean, it's, it's, it's just a month since the war in Gaza. And still, as I said, in their perception, they are winning. So if they are winning, and also, uh, in the case of, uh, of Ukraine, uh, uh, the West is losing and uh, the U.S. is in decline. So what would, I mean, uh, would that make any sense uh, for to enter into a new agreement to tie its hand, etc.? You know, they have been thinking about alternatives. For example, this good neighborhood policy, you know, deals with Saudi Arabia, I don't know, closer alliance with Russia, going into all these forums like SEO, like BRICS, they see this as an alternative. This is, this is the main problem. They don't see the need, you know, talking in terms of the escalation that's already happening. You know, it was exactly yesterday. I mean, the Iranian foreign minister said that there has been messaging back and forth about the escalation with regard to warring. I mean, the way he, he depicted it was if the United States is begging to Iran, which is obviously not the case. But he admitted that there are messages. And this uh, recent uh, understanding, I mean, a few, months, uh, a few months ago, that was supposed to allow Iran to, I mean, Iranian assets were unfrozen, and then Iran was supposed to also get access to some other, you know, fast kind of, I mean, possibilities in terms of selling oil, etc. Uh, it was also based on the escalation, you know. Um, I, I was among those who didn't believe that it was going to be a prelude to a kind of bigger agreement between the sides. They have been in this damage control mode, as I said. They have been in this de-escalation mode. But the problem is that the Iranian side really thinks that, uh, first, as I said, it cannot trust. And second, it doesn't need a deal with the United States, which is another miscalculation to my understanding. Well, lots of miscalculations there, Hamid Reza. Thank you so much for this very fascinating conversation. And let's hope that reason prevails and this horrible bloodshed ends. It's just really, really terrible. Thank you so much. Yeah, of course, I mean, the situation is very delicate and everything can really happen. So let's, let's hope for the best. That's the only thing we can do, actually. 
And this brings us to the end of another episode of On the Middle East. I hope you've enjoyed my conversation with Hamid Reza. And for more in-depth stories on the conflict in Gaza, please go to our website, www.al-monitor.com. Thanks for tuning in and goodbye.